The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of the owner, staff, or management of this radio station. Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we bring on our guest today, I would love to invite you to join our conversation by calling us at 877-864-4869. Again, that's 877-864-4869. Or you can log into our chat room at toginet.com. It says live chat. Click there and join us here. It's as easy as that. All right, let's get to it. Today's show is a focus on post-traumatic stress, the transformation of trauma into post-traumatic growth. And this is something that comes up time and time again in the media um, in response to our returning military service personnel who are coming home deeply and highly challenged by the reintegration experience, as well as challenges from what went on at war. But this even um, permeates to a broader spectrum of trauma that each one of us will encounter at some point in time in our lives. Excuse me. And before we bring on our guest, I want to describe a little bit about who he is, because he is uh, a very interesting man who has had the breadth of uh, knowledge firsthand about what it means to be on the front line in a first responder situation. Bob Delaney has risen to the top of two elite organizations in law enforcement as a highly decorated trooper and with, with the New Jersey State Police and as one of the National Basketball Association's most respected referees. Bob has made a major contribution away from the game as well. He testified before the U.S. Senate on organized crime in 1981 
detailing his perilous undercover work for the New Jersey State Police, putting his life on the line for nearly three years, infiltrating the Genovese and Bruno crime families. His riveting life story has been told by HBO's Real Sports, ESPN, CNN, and ABC, as well as dozens of newspaper and magazine articles throughout the United States and Europe, and in, as well as in his critically acclaimed book, Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Good to, ha good to be with you, Lisa. Oh, ha really happy to have you here, because uh, what I love about your story or your background is not only your devotion to service in uh, with the troopers, but also this um, concept of delight and wonder that is a part of your basketball life and world, because my guess is it's a passion of yours. Yeah, it is, and it, uh, it, it, it started as a young kid. I mean, I played ball at the high school and college level, and when I surfaced from doing the undercover work after three years of being infiltrating the mob, that became my inner peace. That became my balance in life. And, you know, back then I didn't know that it was serving me well for the post-traumatic stress that I was dealing with, with the endorphins and satisfying my dopamine and uh, keeping me active and engaged. But today I refer to it as 21st century therapies, finding ways to keep active, engaged people active, engaged when they come home from serving our country or experience trauma in another way. Um, let's talk a little bit about your three years of undercover work running a trucking company in New Jersey. I am fascinated by this. Yeah, um, I followed in my father's footsteps and joined the New Jersey State Police, and that organization is steeped in deep military tradition. It was founded by Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the famed General H. Norman Schwarzkopf. And, um, you know, I was a general road duty trooper, and uh, I got a call one day from division headquarters, Lieutenant Jack Liddy, Organized Crime Bureau, Criminal Investigation Section. And, uh, you know, I grew up Irish Catholic, so that means I wake up guilty in the morning. <laughs> I thought I did something wrong when I got a call from division headquarters. And uh, Lieutenant Liddy came up and had a conversation with me and uh, asked if I was interested in doing undercover work. I said, yes, sir. And uh, he walked away. I said, Lieutenant, what is it? drugs, narcotics, because back then that's all we were doing is by busting on the street. And he said to me, if you keep asking questions, you're going to be out of the running. Over the next few weeks, I learned that the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, and New Jersey State Police were joining forces and starting a trucking company on the waterfront. I became one of five undercover agents that made up this team. And um, during the time, it, it was like most federal grants, it was written for six months. And then uh, every six months it was re-upped, and it went from six months to three years. During that time, we got lucky in the investigation. We had an informant by the name of Pat Kelly who um, became the vice president of a new trucking company that we started. I became the president. The uh, other undercover agents took on different roles of running the trucking company, being my bodyguard. Uh, we mimicked a crew within traditional organized crime. And we gained two new partners in this new trucking company called Alamo Transportation, which was in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty in Liberty State Park in Jersey City, New Jersey. And those two new partners were the Genovese and Bruno crime family. We were kicking back 25%, 12.5% to each, and our trucks were making three runs to everybody else's one run down on the Port of Newark because of our connections with the mob. Amazing. And and for those of you who don't know out there that the trucking industry has had a, a long history of being mob controlled, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I, you know, um, 
Anywhere there were unions uh, back in the day, this this has been uh, transformed. Uh, we don't have those kinds of problems at the level that we did. I, I, we, you know, we never say never, but uh, we've made impacts with the type of investigation I was involved in and many others in law enforcement that uh, traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, whatever terminology we want to give to it, doesn't have the stronghold that it once had in this country and the uh, impact that it had. The laws are in place that don't allow it uh, to flourish uh, within the unions or uh, organized, you know, controlled, legalized gambling like uh, it was in Vegas back years ago. But uh, so... There's been a transformation in, in our, our, our society. And, and, you know, that um, brings up a point that I make about post-traumatic stress. The more that we have education and awareness and understanding consequence, do we change behavior? And uh, we've done it with HIV, AIDS. We've done it with alcohol. We've done it with drugs. We've done it with tobacco. We can do the same thing with understanding post-traumatic stress. And let's jump right in, into this because this is really the heart of the matter for myself and the work that I do and certainly where your heart lies with your work. Um, post-traumatic stress, and I'm glad that you do not use the D. It is something that I use in my writing because people are used to um, referring to post-traumatic stress disorder, but the D really gives it a stigma that must not be there in order to help these men and women gain the support services and, and recovery programming that they need. I agree wholeheartedly. At times I refer to it as either PTSR or PTSG, and PTSR to me is post-traumatic stress reaction. This is a human reaction. It's not a mental illness. Uh, we are all susceptible to it. It's just that those who serve are in the higher risk group. Uh, we've been talking about these things forever. Sophocles wrote two plays about it, uh, not know, the warrior not knowing how to act after battle. Uh, we told it battle fatigue after World War One, shell shock after World War II, um, Excuse me, opposite. Shell shock after World War One, battle fatigue after World War II, flashbacks after Vietnam. We've always had an, an understanding, but my belief is that we've over-medicalized it uh, and, and created this uh, image that there's something mentally wrong with you if you experience post-traumatic stress. Here, here, and let's let's stop right there for a second because this is a really important point to bring up and and shatter a myth. And you know, I don't know if you know this, Bob, but we're doing online programming for vets now. We've got reboot programming, and they come into a six-week classroom, and we shatter this in the first session um, that this is a normal human reaction to extraordinarily stressful circumstances. And in fact, if you went through what you went through in first responder or war situations and were not affected in some way, that the concern should actually be the other way. What is wrong that your humanity is not being allowed to be expressed? Because this is a human response. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I wrote another book called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress and had to have a long conversation with my publisher because I didn't want the word post-traumatic stress disorder on the front cover. Uh, And and as you said, I had to give in on the back cover and and in the book at some points because uh, people only hear this as post-traumatic stress disorder, so they hear PTSD and then understand what that is. But I think the more that we can change that, you know, I I speak with our troops and uh, cops, firefighters, uh, the higher risk group, those who serve us. And I've been to Iraq on on, uh, multiple occasions, been over to Afghanistan, was up in Korea recently. Uh, I'm at a different military base or post almost every week. And one of the things that I share with them is my story and point the finger at me of what I experienced. And the the stage that I was on happened to be the streets of New Jersey. Uh, 
no different than the stage they're on that may be the streets of Baghdad or Kandahar. We all have different battlefields that we experience trauma on, and it can come from a natural disaster. The folks up in Oklahoma City now are dealing with trauma. So post-traumatic stress is going to be part of what takes place there. It happens after Katrina. It happens after Haiti. It happens um, after any trauma. Bob, I hate to interrupt you. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to c- continue on this very serious and, and much-needed conversation. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. To learn more about Bob Delaney and the amazing work that he does, visit him at DelaneyConsultants.com. That's D-E-L-A-N-E, Delaney, and Surviving the Shadows. I think... I wanted to fight. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain all on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness. Because happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I'm here today with Bob Delaney, who is both a decorated trooper with the New Jersey State Police and one of the National Basketball Association's most respected referees. And you might ask yourself, what do those things have to do with one another? Well, we're talking today about the process of moving from post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth. And Bob, in his career as a trooper, was involved in undercover work um, with the mob. And there was a significant amount of stress and trauma involved with his work there. And part of what gave him pleasure and helped him overcome that trauma was his full engagement and passion for basketball and being of service to something that he really loves, which is the sport. So, Bob, we're carrying on the conversation about the importance of the naming PTSD without the disorder and really looking at these symptoms as a natural byproduct 
of the traumatic experience, not a disease, not craziness, that it is the body, soul, and mind, and spirit responding as it should. Yeah, Elisa, you know, um, it, I don't know if you know a, a book called Achilles in Vietnam by Dr. Jonathan and Shea. Uh, he talks about healing being done by survivors, not to survivors. And I think that's an important point in understanding post-traumatic stress is we have a tendency to want to do things to people to make them better, hand them two pills, uh, do something that we can document and have a grasp on and feel as though there's some kind of quantitative measure there. Um, but he makes an interesting point. It, his statement of it's healing by survivors, so peer-to-peer -peer conversations, peer-to-peer, -peer, I, even, I even shy away from the word therapy, uh, so that we stay away from medical terms, peer-to-peer -peer is important. Being able to have a conversation that allows you to talk about your experience uh, then validates and gives permission to someone else to speak about their experience. And if you've gone through something similar, that to me is peer-to-peer. -peer. So I experienced it when I surfaced from doing the undercover work. I was going through tough times. Uh, I didn't know what this emotional roller coaster ride was as a result. And I got lucky. A guy by the name of Louis Free was an FBI agent assigned to the case. He became the 15th director of uh, the FBI uh, as his career progressed. And you may know the name because most recently his um, private company that he now has uh, was responsible for the investigation at Penn State, and it's known as the Free Report. Well, Louis introduced me to another undercover agent who was working over in New York at the same time I was working in Jersey. And his name was Joe Pistone. You would know him as Donnie Brasco. Hmm. And Joe and I uh, had a peer-to-peer -peer relationship that allowed me, when I spoke to him, and I looked in his eyes and I read his body language to understand he knew what I was going through. But I ask folks many times when I'm speaking, if I had a balloon in front of the room, how do I get the air out? I can let the balloon go. It flies all over the room. It's out of control. We don't know where it ends up. I could take a pin and pop it, and I'll get the air out, but I don't have a balloon anymore. But if I'm patient and I'm willing to listen to sounds I don't want to hear, and I turn it upside down, and I have that screeching noise, the air coming out a little bit at a time, eventually I'll get all the air out of the balloon, and we'll have a full balloon we can use again one day. That's us with trauma. We need to get the air out of our balloon. Having peer-to-peer, -peer, someone that we can talk to about what we experienced, who went through a similar situation, allows for the air to get out of our balloons. Agreed. It, it is a vital component and one that um, some people find stupidly simple, especially when these are young men and women that have gone off to war. They have gone when they were very, very young and their brains are not fully developed. When they come home, they're barely, from a developmental point of view, they're, they're barely adults. They may be in their early to mid-20s, which is when the brain stops um, uh, developing. And they think that they've been told that the, the solution is in the, in the medicine bottle or the solution is going for traditional therapy or reporting for psychiatry or whatever the treatment happens to be. And that may be integral. I don't want to poo-poo it completely because some people really do need it. But the majority of the processing of the emotions and the healing work occurs in the communication. Exactly. And compound everything that you just said with the uniforms that they wear, whether it was the uniform I used to wear with the New Jersey State Police or the uniform they wear as a Marine and uh, in the Navy, any of the branches of service, 
we like to think of ourselves as being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I can handle it. I can do it. I can, I, I can handle whatever is put in front of me. And while we know heroic things are done on a daily basis by those who wear uniforms, we can never lose sight of the fact that there's a human being inside of those uniforms with real emotions. And the emotions are not something that in your training, for whatever first responder job you're doing or whatever military position you are taking, the emotions are, in a sense, suppressed in the, in the line of duty and safety. Great, great point. I, I make this point all the time with uh, our troops and, and police officers, uh, for example, after Newtown shootings or uh, Aurora. Uh, the job actually protects them for a period of time because they're immersed in the job and they're doing what they're trained to do. Yes. So it doesn't allow them the time to think about what they experience. They're focused on what they're doing. It's about two weeks later, three weeks later, when they're cutting the grass and they're walking uh, down the street with a family member that all of a sudden it hits them. What did I just go through or what did I just experience? And then all of those vivid memories come back and it starts playing like a movie in their head over and over again, not allowing sleep. Uh, then patterns of uh, anger and paranoia and frustration, hypervigilance, all the telltale signs of post-traumatic stress start to come forward. And because of those uniforms, they're believing they're the ones that have to handle everything. They don't share it with anybody. So what do we have? We have people heading towards alcohol in order to deaden their pain or trying to help them go to sleep. And then when they do go to sleep, there's the nightmares and, and the experiences that take place there. So helping people understand what trauma is through education and awareness is as important as teaching them how to break a weapon down or how to assault a building. They're in the business of trauma. It'd be naive to think that they're not going to experience trauma. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, the conversations that are had afterward to, to mentor someone to give them permission to start expressing these parts of themselves in a safe environment, which may not be a clinical setting. The clinical setting itself may offer uh, a threat and become um, the enemy. So to, to really uh, foster people to talk between themselves who have gone through like-minded experiences and give each other permission and space with love, and that love and that empathic listening is the gift and part of the healing process. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I call those 21st century therapies. Today we have to figure out ways that we can create environments that allows peer-to-peer -to, -peer to take place because the traditional ways of sending someone to the dock is not working with no. this generation. So we need to figure out ways, and, and quite honestly, it didn't work with past generations. Uh, it was just stifled uh, more and, um, you know, by creating these environments. So do you remember the movie Taking Chance, an HBO movie that was about uh, an escort officer bringing the body of a Marine that was killed in Iraq home? That it was called Taking Chance because the Marine that was killed was Chance Phelps. His father, John Phelps, today runs hunting expeditions for wounded warriors with visible and visible wounds at his ranch in Wyoming. And it's not about the hunting, it's about creating the environment for a unit going out together, no man left behind, and around the campfire at night, peer-to-peer -peer conversations are taking place. Creating those environments. John Warden started a thing called Ride to Recovery. Ride number two in an interstate recovery. 
rides are done all over the United States and they're called challenges. They're not races, they're rides. So it's not who gets there first. My wife and I took part in one on the 10th anniversary of the attacks of 9-11. We rode bicycles with 350 other people from ground zero at the time, exact time of the first attack uh, on the Twin Towers to Shanksville to the Pentagon. It took eight days, 580 miles, 350 people, all in red, white, and blue uniforms, riding two by two. And at night, there were 250 wounded warriors, and there were 100, pe 100 other police officers, firefighters, and family members. And at night, I gave a presentation on the first night about post-traumatic stress education awareness. The rest of the uh, time that we were together, we had open mic every night, and people would get up and share their story. Peer-to-peer -peer was taking place. You had troops that had lost legs riding recumbent bicycles that were able to talk to others who had lost legs and had gone through the same experience. Well, and, and, I'm, I'm sorry. What I want to <clears throat> jump in here with is, is the sense of mission. And this is a huge part of the wellness after war process is rediscovering or defining what the, what the new mission and the new normal right. is going to look like. And that's a very empowering experience and one that is limitless with, with perspective. Yeah, at least the work you're doing, the work I'm involved in, uh, so many other good folks involved in so many things. We hear about this tremendous financial uh, debt that we have in our country, and it's real and we understand it. But we also have a national debt to the men and women who serve us to make sure that Main Street USA becomes their new normal and that the normal that they experience, that they think is normal of Main Street Baghdad or Main Street Kandahar has to be removed. That's our responsibility to them. They served us. Now it's our responsibility to serve them. Finding ways to help this take place, not only for them but for their families, because I say when someone's going through post-traumatic stress, their family and friends are going through active traumatic stress. And the children, the risk of, of secondhand trauma to those kids and the legacy that they carry forward, you know, for, for future generations. It's a social it's a social situation. It just doesn't affect the veteran. Absolutely. I, I carry a little T-shirt around with me that makes that point that I, I show in front of the room. And um, it says you'd be cranky, too, if your mommy or daddy was deployed. And it's a little fifty <laughs> shirt. <laughs> and it's so true. This impacts all of us. And uh, understanding that it has a ripple effect across the board. Because um, it's, and I think it's an unfair expectation to put on a family member to be that peer-to-peer -peer because they didn't experience with that uh, police officer, firefighter, soldier, or the person who went through a particular trauma uh, of sexual assault went through. My wife, Billy, is many things to me. She's a tremendous support, but she cannot be my peer-to-peer. -peer. She didn't work undercover, that I'm aware of, anyway. <laughs> well, maybe her own kind. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we can address that in the next segment. We're going to go to a break <laughs> shortly. <laughs> I thought it was a good time for a little levity. Um, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we will carry on the conversation about how spouses and partners aren't cannot really be that peer-to-peer -peer support and how to reach out and find places that are comfortable and that can serve you well as you go through the recovery after war process. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. My guest today is Bob Delaney. 
You can learn more about Bob and his incredible work at DelaneyConsultants.com. That's D-E-L-A-N-E-Y Consultants.com. On Facebook, he is the same, but it's Bob.Delaney and Surviving the Shadows. We'll be right back. Here come those tunes and stay tuned. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to fight. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. likes to win, enter our weekly contests at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook, where we give away our guests' books, music, film, and products each week. In addition, we also do great Harvesting Happiness giveaways, like free coaching sessions with Lisa Cypress Kamen, Lisa's books, Happiness First Aid Kits, H-Factor Where Is Your Heart documentary film, Happiness is an inside job product, including the Sterling Silver Infinity Bracelet that benefit Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, a nonprofit whose mission is to assist our returning military personnel and their loved ones challenged by combat trauma and other post-deployment reintegration issues. Join us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook. gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. To Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast on iTunes because we're talking about a really important subject, and that is the transformational process of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth as it relates to military life, but also natural disaster and anything that might be going on in your personal world that has caused trauma, that there are solutions and there are ways of handling a very natural response to extraordinary stress levels. And my guest today is Bob Delaney, and he is the author of a couple of books, one of which is called Surviving the Shadows. And prior to the break, we began a conversation about peer-to-peer uh, support and mentoring. And one of the best ways to begin the healing process is to speak with somebody who has gone through something similar. And Bob, on the break, we were talking about ways to reach out into your community, whether it is a military trauma or some of these recent natural disasters when there is emotional work to be processed. 
how we can go out and find someone to connect with where we can help one another in, in the healing process. Yeah, I, 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 I always offer to folks that when I say the words that I think we've over-medicalized this, it doesn't mean that we don't need the medical side of the house. What I mean by that is that at times we've pushed people away or people are afraid to make the step towards the medical side because we've over-medicalized and called it post-traumatic stress disorder as if there's some mental illness that took place. The reality is is that if you uh, find a peer that has gone through a similar uh, set of circumstances, a similar situation, the opportunity is there for you to have a conversation and that is a a very freeing feeling by speaking about it. And uh, expression comes in many different ways. At times, folks don't really want to talk about it. I, I've done peer-to-peer conversations with people I've never met uh, over, over the Internet by email. Of They've heard about the work that I do, and they contact me, and we start. That allows them to develop a trust level to uh, have conversations. Uh, it's a little bit more anonymous so that they're able to open up and, and uh, allow themselves the freedom of expressing what those inner feelings are. But one thing I do know is that when we, what is personal is universal. And when we <laughs> open up about our, conver- our experiences, we give permission and validation to others to speak about theirs. And um, that, that's an important point here because that tendency to want to push trauma down and put one on top of another on top of another compounds the issue. Uh, you know, I use an, another example when I'm, when I'm speaking. I take a glass half full of water that people can see. And right away they think that I'm going with, you know, the half glass, half full, half, uh, uh, half empty kind of attitude thing. When in reality I ask, how much do you think this weighs? Uh, three ounces, four ounces, it's easy to carry. It's easy to carry around. It's not that heavy. I can pick it up. Yet, if I hold this for an hour, two hours, three hours a week, ten days, uh, all of a sudden my arm's going to hurt. It's going to pull me down in other ways. It's not until I learn how to put it down and get away from it or learn how to ask someone else to help me carry it that that is going to be even lighter. And that's the part I, I say to them, what's in this glass is stress, is the trauma that you experience. We need others to help us carry it. We need others to help us carry us, and we need other tools and resources to help us draw our attention. At the same time that we're processing the emotion, it's essential to learn how to thrive and to learn how to flourish because the weight of the the sadness, the grief, the anxiety, the depression, the self-medication, the rage, all of, all of those things has the ability to destroy us. But what Absolutely. can help? And I've yes. heard from I've heard from so many that have uh, gone through this that it's not only that experience that they had, whether at war or, or, or however they were serving or however they were involved in a trauma. They get over the survivor's guilt at times. They get over uh, understanding what they experienced. But I had one soldier say to me, "I don't think I'll ever get over the way I treated my family. That's mm. an additional trauma that comes as a result." Yeah. And that's powerful. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, it makes me uh, pause for a moment because it, it highlights how, um, how many people are affected, the sphere of influence by sort of the, the big devil of, of the trauma. It, it affects everybody. It permeates every aspect of one's life. And this trauma is, is like an earthquake. There's an epicenter and there's tremors that go out for 
days, weeks, months, years. Years. Yep. Years later. And I've had the experience where I've had people come into programming where they have not spoken about their trauma for decades. You know, the, the ability to release some of that emotion and release the uh, the guilt and the shame and the, the the moral injury to begin to repair the moral injury, which is a part of this process as well, is is immense. And I and I am not going to poo poo or minimize the value of love in all of this. And this is love in a very humanistic, the highest regard possible for another person's experience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, with that, I want to bring on another guest to join our conversation because we've spoken about um, war trauma, we've spoken about natural disaster, and there's another element inside that is important to open up the discussion, and this it affects both the military and civilian life, and it, it, this is sexual trauma and assault. And we have another friend here. Her name is Monica Cora. She's a native of Lotan, Norway. In 2008, she was offered a 100% running scholarship at Southern Methodist University. She earned a BS in applied physiology and a minor in psychology. During her time at SMU, she was kidnapped and sexually assaulted. As a result of her experience, she has found her mission in life. We talked about the importance of the mission to help others fight back to a normal life after experiencing personal trauma. She founded the Monica Cora Foundation and is in the process of getting her book published to share her experience with others. Welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me on. Oh, I want you to just jump into this conversation because you will give a voice to a part that we have not addressed, which is uh, the sexual trauma and how one creates a, a thriving life after such a tragedy occurs. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's what I hope to do with me opening up. I hope to give a voice to victims that aren't ready to open up yet and hopefully give them a little push to do that because for me, the key to my healing has been been to open up. First to family, to friends, to a psychologist, and then now speaking up publicly about it. Uh, it's been, yeah, the key to my healing for sure. If you could, if you could share a little bit about your story, how, how you got here. We know it was on a running scholarship and the process that led up to the incident and then the immediate steps that you took to help yourself. Right. Yeah, I was offered a scholarship in 2008 to come to Dallas and run for a college team. And for me, that was just a dream come true. And I was, I just said, yes, I want to come right away. And I did. I came over to Dallas first first time in the U.S. Came with a bag and moved over here, um, and I really I loved it. It was a transition at first to come from the small country, a small town in Norway, all the way to Dallas. But I started to love it. I made a lot of friends and run and had fun. And um, and this happened. This was my sophomore year. Um, Prior to Christmas holiday, we were studying for finals, and one night we got invited over to one of um, the soccer players had a party, uh, athlete party, um, as a Christmas holiday party. And me and my friends, we decided to go over and be social with friends. So we did, and after a few hours, we decided to go home um, to sleep. We were tired, and we knew that we had to get up in the morning to study for for our finals. Uh, 
that as we were about to leave this party, we had a friend of ours came to pick us up. But as we approached his car, another car came pulling up around his car. And suddenly I heard screaming and I had two men grabbing me from behind and I had the gun to my head. And at that time I was just helpless. Um, I just had to give them what I wanted to save my own life. And it was quite a process after that. You just have to take a pause in your life and realize that I need to take a few steps back. Now everything in my life has to be centered around healing. Um, so what I first did was that I started to write to myself, just wrote in a book, every detail that happened, everything, how I felt about what happened. And that was a way for me to just start to open up to myself and to myself um, and to start to get emotions out because that was hard for me in the beginning. And after I did that, I could close the book and then I felt ready to talk to others about it. So I went to see a psychologist and I talked to her and I started to talk to